Good morning, Strong Tower. It's good to see everybody this morning. Good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If you're our guest today, we're glad to be together with you. Glad you could join us. Um, and we have a few extra guests today from Winter Haven. We're excited to have uh, Tony Ellswick and his wife Amber and their team who are uh, planting a church east of Winter Haven or 27 quarter, somewhere in that area uh, in the next a few months and, and throughout the year, but we're excited to have them with us today. They're part of the Renew Polk Network, and if you're new to our church, uh, the Renew Polk Network is our church planting network, and we're uh, really grateful for the network and all that God is doing in our county to see the gospel go forward. So we're glad to have you with us this morning. Amen. Amen. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14 is where we'll be this morning. Or you can follow along on the screen behind us. Uh, Mark 14, looking at verses 53 to 64, as we continue our way through the Gospel of Mark. Hear the reading of God's Word. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text, The Way of Trial. The Way of Trial this morning. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are uh, the Lord who speaks to us. And let us be the people who listen. Let us be the people who hear the word of God and receive from you what you have said to us. And, and as we listen, we would take it into our hearts and that it would bear good fruit and that we would be uh, people who not only hear but do your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There are few things more dramatic than being on trial for your life. In fact, in April uh, of 1663, this is exactly what happened to astronomer Galileo. Galileo was under uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church Inquisition, when they came looking for him as a heretic. And they said, you need to turn yourself in because you are teaching heresy, and here's his heresy. He was teaching that the earth revolved around the sun. Yes, in, in his time period, it was a new idea 
that the world did not, or the, the, the solar system did not revolve around the earth. Because in their mind, that that's the way things had always been. That's the way things had always been understood. I mean, people in their time and, and going further back had always viewed the world as, or the universe as geocentric, the earth at the center, right? And it wasn't until Copernicus came along and Copernicus said, no, I have, I've looked at the evidence and I've seen that what is actually true is that the sun is at the center of our solar system and the earth, along with all the other planets, revolve around the sun. But that was a new idea. And Galileo was going around teaching this idea and, and spreading this news of what Copernicus had discovered. And because this was a new idea, the Catholic Church said, you know what, we're going to put you on trial and you're going to be found guilty. They, they had already decided it. And sure enough, he goes on trial, he's found guilty, he's banished to house arrest, get this, for the rest of his life. It wasn't, here's the thing, it wasn't until 1992, 300 years later, that the Roman Catholic Church decided to reopen the case and found, as they looked at the evidence, that it is true that the earth does, in fact, orbit around the sun. That's how long it took, 300 years and they decided to acquit Galileo's name, and, and he was cleared of all charges of heresy 300 years later. See, the point of a trial is to get to the truth, unless you've already decided you don't want the truth. Right? If you put somebody on trial and you don't want the truth because you've already come to the conclusion beforehand you have decided what the truth is, then you've gone against what a trial is designed for, because sometimes we don't want the truth. We don't like the truth. We, we don't want to handle the truth. We, we can't handle the truth. We don't want to deal with it because there's so much that is going to happen to us if we deal with the truth, we try to put it off. And yet, a trial is meant to reveal the truth. That's what it's designed to do. And this is why in the Bible, when we go through suffering and we go through hard times, the Bible often calls our suffering trials. Have you ever noticed that before? The Bible calls these things, these hard times, these difficult situations we find ourselves in, calls it trials because in our suffering, there's a lot of truth that comes out. There's a lot of things that get revealed that maybe have been hidden. There's a lot of things that maybe you didn't know about yourself or you didn't know about somebody else, but in that suffering, whether it's suffering in your parenting or it's suffering in your finances or it's suffering uh, in your workplace, whatever it is, in that pain, there's a revelation that happens. There's a revealing of what's true if we're willing to receive the truth. So today we're continuing this series in Mark, and we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, calling it The Way. Because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is portrayed by Mark as, as he's on his way towards something. And as Jesus is on his way towards his purpose, towards why he came, he's bringing people along, and he's calling them to discipleship, and he's calling us on the way. And now we're coming to the last few days of Jesus' life, and it's called the Passion Week. And that phrase, the Passion Week, comes from the Latin passio, which means to endure suffering. You're, you're enduring suffering in this Passion Week. And so Jesus is in this immense suffering. 
When we looked last week about how Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now as he's here in this moment on trial, we're seeing Jesus in immense suffering. And actually what we see in this scene is there's three trials happening. That's what I want to look at today. And in each of these three trials, there's something revealed. There's some truth that comes out of the trial. And so first, we're going to look at Jesus on trial. Jesus on trial. If you're taking notes, number one, Jesus on trial. Look at me at verse 55. Look at how it begins. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But get this, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. I mean, stop there for a second. First of all, this trial just reeks of corruption. Just reeks of corruption. Jesus has been arrested that evening in in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's brought by Roman soldiers to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas is the high priest, right? And he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is this council, this uh, governing body of the Jewish people. And typically, the Sanhedrin would meet at their own building. They had a designated building where they would meet and have their councils and make their judgments. And yet, they never met at Caiaphas's house. There's no historical evidence that they would ever meet at his house. This is a very unusual thing that they would go to the high priest's house and have a meeting. And not only that, there's, there's 71 members of the, of the Sanhedrin, and it required about 23 to have uh, enough people to have a, a capital case, right? And so here, they're meeting in the middle of the night at Caiaphas' house without the whole Sanhedrin. And they're trying Jesus on their assumption that he should be put to death. And so here you've got People meeting in the middle of the night, which, by the way, if you were having a capital case of the Sanhedrin, you had to meet twice. And, and so if you were going to give somebody a guilty verdict, you couldn't just do it in one day. And it had to be two separate days, two separate meetings. Both meetings had to happen during the daytime. So you can see in this scene, Mark is showing us that every rule that they had for a fair trial is being broken. Mark is showing us that that the Sanhedrin is is basically short-circuiting the process to cover up in the middle of the night this execution that they want to see of Jesus. It's a verdict-seeking evidence, right? It's, It's a trial that's already determined the truth. But here's what's amazing about the scene. They find no evidence. They find none. Think about this for a moment. They, they open the door wide for, for testimony on the floor, right? They say, does anybody have a credible uh, charge against Jesus? And people start talking and people say, you know, well, I saw him say this and, and, and he said this. And, and people are giving different testimony. And Mark says that the more they talk, the more it contradicted itself. They just began to talk in circles and nothing made sense. And, and there was no evidence that could come against them. But listen, this is a room full of Jesus's worst enemies. This is a room full of people who've already determined they want Jesus dead. This is a room full of people who've been watching Jesus for three years in his public ministry, every move he made, and they couldn't find one credible thing against him. I mean, imagine if there was a room full of your worst enemies, and they're given one job to find something, just anything wrong that you've done in your life. And they couldn't find one. 
I mean, this, this is a display of Jesus' incredible beauty. And what's amazing about this is Jesus, as he comes under the microscope in this trial, he becomes even more remarkable. See, for the past 49 years, um, the Nikon Small World Competition has been going on, uh, revealing the beauty of a world that you can only normally see through a microscope. And this is a competition of people who all over the world put in their images that they've taken uh, through various methods uh, using a microscope of, of all kinds of things. And, and it's people from all over the world, 72 different countries. Last year there was 1,300 uh, people who, who entered into the competition. But it's these beautiful displays. You can Google it and, and they show you all the top uh, contenders. And the person who won was this guy, this scientist from the University of Geneva. His name is Gregory Timmon, I think is how you say his name, who captured this colorful and beautiful picture under the microscope of a Madagascar giant gecko. But it was in embryonic form. So this little tiny hand that was about three millimeters wide, if you can measure it, was captured under the microscope and with the naked eye, it looks like nothing. Like you, you could barely even tell it's a hand. With the naked eye, you could, you could barely tell that there's all this intricate beauty inside. But under the microscope, what he captured was ligaments, bones, tendons, nerves, skin, blood cells, all these intricate, beautiful details. It looks like a, just a tapestry of creation. And he won the prize. But with the naked eye, from a distance, it looked like nothing. But when he got real close, you could see the beauty. Listen, the closer you examine Jesus' life, the more beautiful he becomes. And it's the complete opposite with everyone else in your life, including you, right? Everyone else in our life, everything looks great at a distance, I mean, this is why our whole uh, celebrity culture thrives, right? Instagram is, is full of distance. You've got a close-up you know, photo, but it, it's a curated photo. It, it, it's got a, a filter on it. It, it, it put time, or someone put time into that photo, and, and, and you, know, you, you get real uh, curated in, in the image that you're looking for. And so we fall in love with celebrities, and we hear all the good stories about them, and we hear what's happening uh, that they want us to know about. And then we're shocked when there's some kind of scandal because we didn't see behind the camera there was all these other things happening. Because the closer you get, the worse it often is. But it's everybody, right? Think about the people in your life who you're the closest to. They probably have seen some of the most beautiful things in your life but also they've seen some of the ugliest things in your life. And think about the people who are closest to you. They, you have probably seen some of the most beautiful things in their life, but you've probably also seen some of the most ugly things in their life. Because the closer you get to somebody, you start to see all the stuff that's hidden behind the scenes, and it sometimes can be overwhelmingly terrible. But it's the opposite with Jesus. This is what's amazing about Jesus, right? The closer we examine him, the more remarkable he actually becomes. It's, it's unique about Jesus. When, when, when you get close to his life, especially in his trials, especially in his suffering, you start to see just pure beauty. I mean, for example, in just these last few moments that we've been looking at at Mark, when he's betrayed by Judas, Jesus speaks truth and love. When Peter cuts off a soldier's ear, Jesus rebukes his violence. 
When on trial with Pontius Pilate, Jesus lovingly listens to Pilate and challenges him. When he's mocked by the soldiers on the cross, Jesus prays for their forgiveness. When he's gasping for breath on the cross, Jesus makes sure his mother is cared for. And when the thief on the cross repents after mocking him, Jesus welcomes him into the kingdom. I mean, we could go on and on throughout the life of Jesus, but the point is, the closer you get to him and you start to examine his life, he actually becomes more and more remarkable. It's unique about him. There's nobody else like this. And so I want to encourage you, this may sound a little strange, but put Jesus on trial. Put him on trial. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're struggling with faith and, and you've got questions and you've got doubts and, and there's all kinds of things that you're, you're concerned about and that's good and that's wonderful. But listen, put Jesus on trial. Examine his life. Because I guarantee you, the closer you get to Jesus and you start to examine his life, you'll see somebody who is beyond any other description you've ever imagined from yeah. somebody. You'll come into contact as you read the Gospels and you see his life. You'll come into contact with someone who is patient in every circumstance. Someone who's joyful in every hardship. Someone who's honest with every pain. Someone who is faithful in every betrayal. Someone who's unlike you and me, but the closer you get to him, you start to see his beauty. And so when you put Jesus on trial, he becomes remarkable. Remarkable. But often when we get on trial, right, there's a different kind of trial. We're, we're less than remarkable. So let's look at Peter under trial. This is the second point, Peter on trial. Look at, look at verse 66. We're going to skip down. We're going to come back to Jesus on trial. But, but let's skip down because there's something happening outside the courtyard or outside the courtroom in the courtyard as this is going on. And, and it's happening in verse 66. Look at what's, what it says. And as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Now pause there for a second. If you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been making these sandwiches. So what that means is Mark will start a story, interrupt it with another story, and then come back to the story. And Mark makes another sandwich right here. Did you catch it earlier? The, the scene where Jesus is on trial, it starts with Peter entering into the courtyard and he kind of nestles next to the fire and, and then it cuts away, it cuts to another scene. Well, now we're coming back to Peter next to the fire and Peter by the fire is noticed by somebody. This, this slave girl who's next to Peter at the fire looks over and she sees Peter and she thinks, that guy was there at the garden earlier tonight. He was there when we were arresting Jesus. He, he was with Jesus. And so, as one scholar said, like a bad conscience, like a guilty conscience, she accuses Peter and says, you were with him, weren't you? You were with him, weren't you? Now, Peter, when he hears this, he, of course, denies it famously, right? Peter's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, who, who is Jesus? Well, what are you talking about? I, I've never seen this man. I don't know who you're talking about. I mean, he completely denies it. And then you can hear off in the distance this faint uh, rooster crow, right? And then the, the little girl, she also says it again. She, she pushes a little further. She accuses him again. You, you were with him. And, and Peter denies it a second time. Now listen, Jesus had said this was going to happen. 
We, we skipped over this part earlier, uh, but Jesus, if you flash back, it was the last time, just a few moments ago, it was the last time that Jesus was with his disciples, and he wanted them to know what was about to happen. He wanted the disciples to be aware that what was coming was going to be challenging, and so he said to them, all of you are going to fall away. All of you are going to fall away. Now, Peter, when he hears that, Peter, of course, famously, he, he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm never going to fall away. I don't know what you're talking about. They might fall away, right? But never me, Jesus. And I just imagine Jesus' face at that point. Jesus just loves Peter, and, and he must have just grinned as Peter said that. And then he looks at Peter in the eye, and he says, no, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And then Peter doubles down. No, I promise, I would rather die than deny you. That's what Peter says. And then, here we are, in the next scene. Peter had no category for his inability. No category that he could fall until this happens. And then after his second denial, the bystanders who were around the, the fire, they join into the girl's accusations and they say, as they accuse Peter, they say, no, 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 you sound like a Galilean. I mean, this time his accent is giving him away. You, you sound like a Galilean. You must have been with Jesus. And Peter, for the third time, denies Jesus, but this time it's just silly. I mean, it'd be like somebody from Alabama saying, I'm not from the South. You can tell you're from Alabama. You, I mean, when you're from Galilee, you can tell you're from Galilee. And, and so here's Peter with his Galilean accent denying where he's from and who he's been with. And as soon as he opens his mouth, his eyes are open in verse 72. Look at what it says. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter never imagined this. And yet when he's on trial, Right? When the accusations start coming, he starts denying. He never imagined he was capable of this, but he was. Listen, trials reveal our blindness to our brokenness. They reveal our blindness to our brokenness. And you and me, we, we all tend to underestimate the enemy within us that is the raging sinful nature that we have. I mean, when have you ever said, never me? Never me. I mean, we, we say it just like Peter. Even if we don't say those words, we, we live it, right? Never me. Maybe somebody else would do that, but never me. Because Jesus, I'm faithful. I, I'm committed. I, I'm the kind of person you can count on, Jesus. And, and you can tell you said never me because you start playing a comparison game right? You, you start comparing yourself to somebody else who maybe has done something that, that is, in your mind, impossible for you to do. You say things like, I can't believe they're, they're so foolish in their parenting practices. Why would they ever do that? Or, I can't believe that they would ever cheat on their spouse like that. I would never do that to my spouse. 
I, I can't believe that they would be so reckless with their finances and get in that kind of financial situation. How could they ever do that? I would never do that. When have you ever said never me? Because listen, what, what happens is you start comparing yourself to someone else and you think, I could never do that, and you miss the capability within you for sin. And the moment you've turned yourself towards that attitude, the potential for, for evil begins to grow because now your pride has hidden you for, from your own uh, brokenness, and it's the perfect place for sin to attack. Because pride, listen, pride will conceal from you, but, but humility will confess. It'll confess. Humility requires that, that I go on record against myself and I embrace my own brokenness. I embrace my own struggles. I confess my own sin. And often it's suffering, it's trials that will push you to that point where you need to confess. Because it'll start to reveal things you never knew were there. See, I, I believe that sometimes God will, will put you on trial. He'll, he'll, he'll allow suffering into your life. To, to humble you and reveal to you what's really happening in your heart. What's really going on? See, notice that Peter, as he comes into this place, notice that he's broken, he's not dismissive. Right? P Peter doesn't say, oh, you know what? I, I doubled down, I, I did not deny, I, I defend, I, I was just trying to be you know, careful or whatever, right? He doesn't try to be dismissive and defensive, he, he owns it and he says, you know what, Jesus was completely right about who I am. I am broken. I, I am the type of person, he said. I mean, when was the last time you, you just wept over your sin? When was the last time that the reality of your own brokenness hit you in a way that, that you realized, you know what, I am that kind of person? This is what's happening in the text. Peter's coming to realize the depths of his sin. He's starting to realize this, this really is true about me. And what's beautiful is it's the gift of God, it's the grace of God to show somebody to show you, to show me, to show Peter that this is the truth about what's happening. But many of us, if we're honest, we, we don't want to go there. We don't, we don't want to deal with what, what's happening because we're afraid to face the truth about our hearts. I mean, if I'm honest, what are my friends going to think? If I'm honest, what is my spouse going to think? If I'm honest, what, what is my boss going to think? I don't know, what, whatever it is. But if I'm honest with the people in my life, what are they going to think? But you got, you got to ask this, who knows the real you? Who knows the real you? Not the Sunday morning you, not the workplace you where you're trying to be on your best behavior so you can keep your job. Who knows the real you? I mean, that, that's what connect groups are designed for in our church. If you're new to our church, we have connect groups that are these small groups that are meant to be the community that you can share burdens with. And I was listening to someone this week talk about their connect group, and it was so encouraging. And she said, she said this, what our connect group has become is it's become the place where we can share burdens with each other. Where we can deal with what's going on in our life and pray for one another and encourage one another and challenge one another, but, but we have to know the real person. And so there's this, this calling, this, this, this offering, this invitation to the humility to be honest, to say, yes, that is true of me. If you put me on trial, the truth about me 
is I'm far worse than I've ever imagined. But there's a third trial here that gives us hope. And this is the beauty here. Let's look at this last trial. It's us on trial. Let's look back at verse 60 where Jesus is uh, before the Sanhedrin. Verse 60, it says this, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I mean, this is, this is the high priest who, after listening to all these accusations, remember all these people are coming with these false testimonies against Jesus, uh, the high priest gets frustrated and he just says, okay, you know what, let's put Jesus on the stand. He is going to have to testify against himself. And he says to Jesus, don't you have an answer for all these things these people are saying? And Jesus says nothing. Mark says he was silent and gave no answer. I mean, don't you think Jesus at this point, the perfect one, the righteous one, the holy one, would say, no, you've got it all wrong, guys. I'm God. You've got it all wrong. I'm perfect. You, all these things you've said are lies, and here's how they're lies, because this, 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 this. I mean, Jesus could have given a great defense for himself, and it would have been a perfect defense, but he says nothing. In fact, Jesus says nothing at any of his trials. Not here, not at the next trial, not at the next one. Jesus never gives an answer at any of the accusations. Why? Because Jesus is silent as our substitute. As our substitute. See, Jesus was on trial for us. We are guilty of every accusation he received. We are guilty of blasphemy against God. We are guilty of wanting to destroy God's dwelling place. We are guilty of putting ourselves in the place of God. Every accusation given against Jesus was false about him, but it was true about us. See, he gave no defense because he was standing in our place. He was giving no defense because we have no defense he stood on trial for all of us who denied him in our darkest moments. He stood on trial for all of us who continue to be blind to our brokenness. He stood on trial for all of us who stand guilty before God. He stood on trial to take the truth about our guilt and shame. He was standing in our place. But look, listen, he took our place so that he could give us his. See, the gospel is an exchange. The, the gospel is not just Jesus takes away my sin. The gospel is also that Jesus gives us his life, right? Jesus is saying, I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take your guilt. I'm going to stand on trial for you with no defense because you have none. But I'm also going to give you my life so that when you stand on trial, there is no true accusation. When you stand on trial, you're going to have no flaw, no error, no mistake, no sin, nothing against you, nothing that's true because I've given you my life, my perfect, blameless, spotless life. I'm giving it to you as I take your life. Do you see that? The gospel is an exchange where Jesus is saying, I'm going to go on trial for you so that you could be on trial in my place, so that it would be my life for your life, one life for another life, our imperfect life for Jesus's perfect life. The Victoria Cross is Canada's highest military honor. It's similar to the Medal of Honor in the United States, 
And uh, these medals are awarded for people with uh, extreme shows of, of valor and honor. And, and actually, the, uh, the first Victoria Cross of World War II was awarded to a, a company sergeant major, John Robert Osborne. And John Osborne, he and his crew of men were uh, fighting in, in this battle, and they got separated from their battalion as the enemy kind of came closer to them and, and uh, cut them off. And so now they're stuck. They're, they're kind of in this spot where they can't go anywhere, and uh, the enemy starts throwing this barrage of grenades at them. And so as they're seeing these grenades come towards them, John, he decides in the moment that he's going to go grab some of the grenades and throw them off to the side so that they didn't blow up and, and harm them, right? So he's taking these grenades one by one, grabbing them and throwing them, grabbing them and throwing them, until after doing that for a few moments, he notices there's one grenade that's too far away. It's too far away for him to get there in time to grab it and throw it. And so he calls in the moment to his friends, and he says to them, and he warns them that he's going to go that direction and for them to run. And so he runs as fast as he can. He jumps on the grenade and it explodes, killing him instantly. This is why he won the Victoria Cross. This is why he got the highest medal of honor in their country, because he gave his self for all the men to survive. He gave himself, his life, it was in his death that everyone else lives. It was his life for their life. Family, this, this is what Jesus has done. When Jesus says, I'm coming to give you life, what it required was his death. When Jesus says, I'm coming to be your savior, what it required was that he would not be saved on the cross. What it required was his life for our life. Our substitute on trial. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you, is Jesus standing in your place? Has Jesus been your Savior who, who has gone on trial for you to, to take the accusations, to take the punishment, to take the guilt and the shame and the judgment, to fall on the grenade for your life so that you could have his life? That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you, as you go about your day, Jesus has stood in your place. Jesus has taken the full wrath of God for you to have the full favor of God. It's his offer. He says, I'll, I'll stand on trial for you, but by faith you need to receive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you stand in our place. We are so grateful that you were silent with no defense because that meant that you were taking on all of our sin, all of our guilt, all the things that you didn't deserve, and yet you stood in our place and took it for us. And Father, we know as, as we um, are people who are often blind to our own brokenness, we are often blind to what's really happening in our hearts. Lord, we're asking for the grace that you would open our eyes to see, open our eyes to confess, to repent, to turn away from whatever those things are and to turn our hearts and our eyes towards you, that we would see the one who is perfect in every way, beautiful without description, beyond words in comparison. Help us to see you, Lord Jesus. Help us to trust you.
We pray in your name. Amen.